0: Well, so great to be speaking today to Matthew Arrett from Montreal, Canada. He's, uh, I would say, one of the top intellectuals in Canada. Certainly, he's done an unbelievable and important work in so many different areas. Uh, and he's editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He's the author of Un- the Untold History of Canada book series, which uh, I'd like to see the Untold History of America book series, too, I should say, and uh, The Clash of the Two Americas. 2019, he co-founded the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. So, Matt, great to talk to you, and we can. There are so many things we could discuss, but uh, if you're if you're amenable, how about starting off with what the evil Trudeau did to the truckers and what's happened since then?
1: Absolutely, Lou, and thank you for having me on and that uh, very generous introduction. I, I don't know about the, uh, the top intellectual in Canada, but i i, I try to <laughs> I try to pursue uh, cutting through bullshit as much as possible. So uh, and, and making that known. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. Um, for as far as Canada is concerned, indeed, yeah, I think it's been a bit of a wake up call the last couple of years, and especially the last three or four months for a lot of Canadians. Um, in terms of breaking out of the illusion that a lot of people have suffered under thinking that we were this liberal democracy with a elected um, official as a head of state. And the lesson of covid and especially since the uh, the truckers freedom convoy uh had emerged at the end of january february or the end of february um is that that's not the case at all in fact the um the reality is that there is a heavy oligarchical structure controlling canada with a veneer of democratic sort of you know lipstick for for people on the outside trudeau himself is simply obviously Uh, A bubblehead who doesn't come up with any of the policies he puts (laughs) into motion. Um, But he's there for a reason, just like his father was, to advance an agenda that comes from something much higher than him. And when you look at things like the Privy Council office that he and every prime minister who becomes a a member of the government or the head of the government has to sign an oath of allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen um, as part of the, the joining of the Privy Council. As well as keeping, um, oaths secret, you know, people began to realize that there is something above that, that, that deals with the fact that we have a real deep state enshrined within our, our government since the, the 19th century. And things like the governor general, you know, being the actual legal head of Canada as the representative of Her Majesty with lieutenant governors unelected and appointed in each province to exert royal authority, um, over any law that becomes law. Uh, everything has to become be given royal assent so you know here we had a a real uh pushback by people who couldn't survive anymore you know the the it's been two years of lockdown people have not been allowed to get on a plane uh basically enjoy fundamental freedoms like travel out leaving or entering Canada without being uh fully jabbed um even traveling within Canada you could drive from uh, one province to another. But it's a big country, and most people don't have that liberty. You need a car, you need a train, or you need a, a plane or a train, and, and you're not allowed to be on these things without being fully jabbed. So it's really been destructive for a lot of businesses, a lot of families who cannot see each other. And um, <clears throat> and a lot of jobs, I mean, have, have, just like in the United States, have been destroyed. A lot of families uh, have have broken up. And so there was the Freedom Convoy, um, which I think was much bigger than many people realized or thought it was going to be. And um, as an effect, I mean, we've all seen the pictures of the uh, the freezing of bank accounts, the the violent attacks by um, Canadian forces, people who were deputized and, and told to go out and crack some heads, which they did to old ladies being trampled by horses, um, which eventually did result in that gigantic uh, convoy in Ottawa breaking up. And emergency measures were, were used to justify that, even though they weren't ultimately passed into law because there was a lot of pushback. I think there was also a bank run danger where people were pulling a lot of their money out of their banks to avoid their accounts being frozen. That so was this, a great moment, I must say. Yes, it was. <laughs> so I think, yeah, they were pushing, they realized that they were pushing a little bit too fast, too soon, pulled back on some of the, the emergency measures. So there's a little bit of a respite right now. The uh, The tension has been pulled off so people can, for the most part in the provinces, sit down and... In, in, restaurants and what have you but the federal authorities are still maintaining absolute emergency protocols there's still no travel uh, permitted if you're not jabbed and uh, I think that they're just it's just a matter of time before they uh, they snap into another uh, lockdown personally so it's not not looking great in that sense
0: no it's scary of course and it's uh, we have something similar happening in this country and we have across our own deep state and uh, all, all the same evils that Canada has It's alarming and it's nasty and it's vicious and – of course, that's government in my view anyway. But this government really seems to be – the U.S. government wants to rule the world. I mean that's – I think they make no bones about it. And uh, if you don't agree, then you're – you've got to be destroyed whether you're – Russia or uh, Canada ever said no, they would be destroyed. So it's, it's amazing and awful stuff. Tell me about what you're writing about. Now, you write wonderful articles, many of which appear on LouRockwell.com. And uh, tell me about what's your interest right now and what you're writing and researching.
1: Most certainly. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I, I think part of my my
1: ongoing theme that I try to weave in as much as possible into every every article I write and um, is really this idea that it isn't um, that it isn't. Any particular nation state, as mainstream media tries to often frame um, our discussion about what is the cause of our geopolitical woes or what have you, it's not It's not that any nation state exists even in a crystallized Finnish sense of being devoid of a, of a deep state. There's no pure nation state in the world. There's no nation states making decisions. And ultimately, um, there is this supranational um, power above nation states as an authority, um, which has been there for a very long time. I mean, this is a transgenerational uh, beast which operates fifth columns uh before the word deep state was was you know popularized people had formally utilized the term fifth columns you know uh that operates these things in every single country of the world to to varying degrees and without taking into consideration the understanding of this very centralized supranational um oligarchy that has certain modus operandi certain principled, I mean, I won't say principled from the true sense of the word, but it has certain principles that it adheres to, organizational principles uh, that it it must operate under in order to function. It, without understanding that, it, it's really impossible to make sense of a lot of the the developments, why wars happen, why economic crises are orchestrated throughout history. And we're given a lot of, you know, explanatory models that don't really get us at causality. They're just designed to sort of give us a sense that, oh, yeah, you know, that, that economic crisis you know that what pick an economic crisis you know that happened because of um a, some you know people will often have like a, a cyclical explanation oh there's this uh 11 year cycle of, of booms and busts or whatever you want to call it and there's a whole bunch of different varying reasons depending on on whatever ideological bent um the the narrative is is catering to but overall, Most mainstream narratives ignore the existence of an actual oligarchy. So I try to just get that point across that, uh, when you look at what happened to the United States over the past, especially 60 years since the death of John F. Kennedy and his brother, um, it on the surface, a lot of people, especially here in Canada, you know, we, we tend to be very anti-American as, as a culture in Canada. That's part of being part of the British, you know, educational system coming through it. You kind of are trained to think of (laughs) America as this, uh, this intrinsically just evil rapacious beast there, there's a lot of a lot of that it's it's really weird not so much on the west coast but it's definitely here on the on the east coast um is that weird or is it in, true it has a bit of both you know like obviously the united states hasn't uh, been it's been on its best behavior since the kennedys were killed and uh, and uh you know there was a plunge into completely these unending unending wars in vietnam and laos and yes. beyond and and so obviously the U.S. hasn't merited much, much uh, reason to to receive praise. But at the same time, the United States population and the nation as a whole has not has not really benefited by the policies of globalization over the past fifty sixty years either. You know, so it's like the U.S. has created a situation where its whole system, its whole society, has self sabotaged. And then the question is, well, who did benefit? Under whose uh, interests did the last fifty years of Anglo American imperialism? Uh, the rape and destruction of Africa and other poor countries that wanted to have industrial development and whose leaders were were promptly assassinated, usually by an Anglo-American coup or, uh, or some other plot. So there was all of this good that could have happened, and yet it, it was sabotaged. So who benefited? And that's where you start seeing that, I think, again, one of the key lessons I'm trying to get across in my writings is that it's... The same enemies, those those same interests that are out to destroy Russia, China, the entire Eurasian alliance, which is developing as an alternative security economic system currently faced with the collapse of the the Western order, are the same interests that are out to have been out to destroy the United States for a very long time as well. It's not not like it's not like the United States is intrinsically the enemy of China or Russia or other countries. It's that we have this other thing which is taking control like a like a Borg, you know, will take control (laughs) of their victims and try to use them. Uh, for their own agenda. So that, that's sort of what I'm doing in all of my articles in varying ways.
0: Well, it's very important. And of course, it, it has applicability to what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the Ukraine is
1: is just the most unfortunate um, situation. I mean, they, they're, they're, their physical economic prospects have been so high. You know, if you just go back 30 years, the Ukraine had one of the highest per capita GDP standards, the, the highest industrial, one of the highest quality industrial bases of Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a hub, you know, the Black Sea was a hub for international resorts. Like people would come from all over to vacation there. It was just a really high quality place to live. And in only 30 years, just look at it today. It's it's at the very bottom of the basket in terms of per capita GDP of European countries. It's been systematically destroyed. And one could say, oh, that was just a series of unfortunate mistakes that happened since 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. We tried, you know, we really wanted to help. Ukraine, and we've just made the wrong decisions, and now look at them, oops. Or you could say that was a systematic intention. And I think that that second one was is much more uh, reasonable, that there was an agenda to, uh, to break Ukraine economically, such that the population, you know, there wasn't a big support base for neo-Nazi um, romanticism. Of the Banderites, uh, you know, who've become national heroes in recent years and, and other Azov and other, uh, you know, fascist military groups that glorify, uh, the fascist participation of Nazi collaborators, uh, like Mikola Lebed and others during World War II that, that carried out mass exterminations, not just of Jews, but also of Slavs, of Poles, all of the inferior intervention. That was not a big thing. If you look in the 1970s, 1980s in Ukraine, that was not a big, um, Dynamic, And under the conditions, I think, of, of economic despair, the mass creation of an oligarchy that was arranged under the watch of people like Bill Clinton, well, Strobe Talbot, who was in charge of much hmm. of this perestroika operation, uh, Victoria Newland, <laughs> Strobe Talbot's personal assistant in the 1990s, um, and a lot of George Soros money that all obviously all works together to get a certain effect that integrated these countries increasingly into NATO that had been part of the Warsaw Pact. Um, the, the Balkanization of Yugoslavia, obviously, which, which is an illegal war, uh, carried out by NATO, um, and the encirclement of Russia and China, um, by this ballistic missile shield. Um, this has been something which resulted, I mean, when you just look at the destruction of, of economic op- opportunities in despair and, and the radicalization of more and more people, which is, I think at the heart also of many of the problems that, uh, are underlying the, uh, the, you know, the fire is currently waging, raging in Ukraine today, uh, since especially Russia has been forced to respond to the threat, not only of, of Ukraine joining Russia, but Ukraine also hosting nuclear missiles, as Zelensky had called for, um, you know, on February 19th, mm-hmm. a week before uh, the Japanese prime minister, or former Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe, who also glorifies, by the way, World War II Nazi collaborators of Japan. Um, he, he even called for uh, acquiring nuclear weapons controlled by the United States to p- to protect themselves against uh, rapacious China, and also called for the U.S. supporting Taiwan militarily in the advent of a of a Chinese of, of China behaving like Russia and you know taking uh, the, the Pacific Ukraine A.K.A. Taiwan, which is legally part of China anyway, but but you know people are not supposed to think about that.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so it's the exact same game plan being deployed on both, both sides of the world right now. And it's not very creative, but it is very dangerous.
0: No, it's really, it's, it's horrifying. In fact, how many of the good guy intellectuals in Canada actually understand this, for example?
1: Oh, the, the understanding is quite low. The, yeah, yeah. there's a very low level of literacy, um, in terms of how, well, I mean, how, how to think about people will often compartmentalize geopolitics from uh history from economics and so people will often have some interesting things to say about one of their fields of specialty which is the same case for europe and the united states as well i think compartmentalization is really the death of understanding um if it's done to um uh unnaturally because i mean you, you specialization i think is fine but you don't want to have a specialized myopic focus at the expense of the big picture and, and that that's i think the, the big problem the big mental handicap that's been uh put into uh, our our zeitgeist is that people cannot see what the hole is. They can just focus on their particular niche, you know? Um, so it, it creates a situation where most people are instruments of something that they don't even understand. You know, they're they're highly specialized to fit into it into as a cog, into a machine, into their department, uh, into their bureaucratic whatever structure, and they don't know what they're doing, whether it's in whether they're working for intelligence, whether they're, they're working for the World Bank or IMF, I'd think the ninety nine point eight percent of the people operational within these institutions are not fully aware they're not bad people you know they don't go to bed thinking okay we destroyed a country today (laughs) great (laughs) you know um but you just need to have a small with this type of system in place just you only need a small little executive grouping within a nerve center that can see what the hole is and that, that can nudge and move the system in a certain direction um so there's this this awful Idea of conspiracy theories that comes from, I think, Hollywood movies like like Fight Club. You know, where <laughs> there's this fallacious idea that just everybody is in on it, and it's not like that. Um, so, today, I think if if you do look at the the interactivity of of the economic systems, of the political agendas that that transcend individual lifetimes, you know, there, there are these higher continuous functions, and you look at the geopolitical sy- system, they're 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 all just different sides of the same uh, story. And when you start realizing that, then you can start, I think more, I mean, you know, people's bell curve increases, uh, dramatically, you know, their, 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 their density of discoveries that they can make by cutting through the bullshit of popular narratives that are all lies, mostly all lies placed in our place to de- deflect our attention from discovering a truth. Um, that, that happens really fast, but they have to sort of, that first discovery is a tough one to think about how does, the economic crisis, you know, the, 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 the control of the banking system, the ideologies of, of banking tie into the geopolitical controls of minerals, resources, nations, and, uh, and other things that are more in the domain of geopolitics. Matt, how
0: concerned should we be about the Great Reset?
1: That's a no-brainer, right? I think for anybody who's been listening to you, <laughs> Lou, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're probably already quite concerned as they should be. Um, but I think that Rather than, I mean, I get a lot of emails from people who, who are kind of bad tripping, um, like flipping out, um, because it is, it is bad, you know, and you, you look at the, uh, the, the intention is, is pretty clear of depopulation, that there is certain computer models that have been operational, especially since the early seventies, um, produced by people, you know, organizations like the club of Rome that have tried to justify that there is this, Absolute cap on population based on what input Mm -hmm. we we put into our computer models that define resources and certain technologies that we that exist at a current state that allow for certain maintenance of of people at a at a certain level of of quality of life and these computer models you know I think there's a certain consensus um, are that we can sustain sustainably um, in equilibrium of of some homeostatic view of nature. Uh, maybe a billion, maybe two billion, uh, human lives, which is far lower than the current nearly eight billion or more, um, that currently exist. So the great reset, I mean, from, from a simple standpoint, it's really just an, uh, an excuse, a label that was created in the wake of this pandemic to justify a complete behavioral modification and a set of new values, uh, to be imposed onto the world system as a way to justify or, or, or get the victims of this depopulation agenda to acquiesce or even desire their own destruction by having us be convinced as people that the great faults of the world's ills, you know, climate change, uh, pandemics, this is all just that we consume too much. There's too many of us. We we allow too many uh, cows to exist and too much wheat production, which is the current Canadian government just produced a report actually uh, saying that the Canadian farmers that produce wheat and wheat mostly, um, but all all Canadian farmers are the highest carbon dioxide emitting uh, producers in of of farming at least in uh, the world is somehow what they've tried to maintain in this fact. There's no facts actually backing up any of the claims in this report, but the argument is being made that we have to solve the problem by essentially shutting down um, those causes of utilizing fertilizers, utilizing uh, different, uh, you know, uh, bad chemicals and bad uh, emissions that contribute to global warming, which, frankly, it's this is there is no global warming happening from a scientific standpoint. Um, anybody actually... Who who are looking at the real parameters of what causes climate change to happen historically? I'll just say this as a segue. <laughs> um, they know that it's primarily being driven by astro climatological issues. You know, the sun, the electromagnetic field of the Earth that moderates the the amount of cosmic rays coming in to our our Earth and seeding clouds. Which, if you know, you think about what causes the heating and cooling. In short or longer term cycles, it's things like this. It's, it's having more or fewer clouds. When you have more cosmic rays, you get more low level cloud coverage, you get more cooling. And if this continues in time too long, you can tend to get, um, an ice age whereby you lose a lot of life, which is sort of what it seems we're heading into right now at the end of a 10,000 year Holocene warming period, which is currently what we're living through right now is not global warming, but actually the opposite, the, the emergence of a new, whether it's a small or a longer, Ice age, we still are not sure, but that's really what we should be thinking about. And instead, people are looking at these computer models with all of their projections of like how uh, how much we're going to burn the earth in the next 30 or 40 years, which they've been saying now since the 70s. They've always been wrong. Um, and trying to shut down food production um, in, in Britain as well, right? Under the great reset ideology, they're, uh, they're currently – they've just put online Boris Johnson, a program to uh, give financial incentives to farmers – to uh quit farming. Just, you know, we'll give you one bulk oh. uh chunk of money. Just sell your farm, get out of farming, retire. We'll we'll make it lucrative for you. Um they're paying farmers across the United States to destroy their crops. You know, there's there's montage mm-hmm. videos of, of hundreds of farmers all across the U.S. basically filming themselves crying saying I, I have to destroy my my food. They're even paying them 1.5 times more than market value for their crops, not for their, their food to be eaten, but just for them to take, um, just to destroy them. Right. And they're being told, I don't want to do this. Um, but they're, they're being threatened with having insurance withheld the following planting season if they don't do it. So it's a, there's a real artificial, in, uh, intention right now to create scarcity. On top of the economic crisis, which is, I mean, our, our financial system was designed to blow out. I, I think when you just look at what put this thing into motion back in the early 70s, um, it, we had a formally viable industrial capitalist economic system that was transformed into a speculative basket case under the, uh, the floating of the dollar, right, off of the fixed exchange rate gold standard and into uh, the floating markets and then tied to, to the price of, of oil on the spot markets and futures. So, I mean, that that whole thing that Kissinger and the Trilateral Commission orchestrated when they were the same people who were – I mean, th- these are the same networks that, was, that were creating the World Economic Forum in 1971. Klaus Schwab was Kissinger's personal student. So he was also uh, the prodigy of Maury Strong. And Maury Strong, I think everybody listening probably knows this sociopathic Canadian, uh, was a co-founder of that World Economic Forum as well. Mm-hmm. Um, these were the institute – they wanted to take a viable economic order that was premised on, you know – industrial capital like at the actual a capitalism that was based upon the creation of capital not just spe- speculating on on increasing rates of debts and they turned it into a time bomb based on myopic you know maximization of profits in the moment without thinking about the longer term consequences of your decisions economically and and creating a situation where we have today you know the the biggest cartelization of of corporations above nation states and and a bubble of what is it i don't even know Lua uh, what do we have for derivatives built into the system at this point? I I don't, I don't know if this can be calculated, but it's way more than the, the GDP by a factor of like 10 or 20. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the great reset. It's, it's really an idea of going back to feudalism. It's a, it's a technocratic feudalism. And I I think that I would be a lot more depressed if I were just looking at the transatlantic community here in our part of the, the Titanic, you know, but if, if I look globally um, at the process, I have a lot more hope because they're actually for the first time in world history, as far as I could see, a coalition of different ancient cultures, civilizational forces are in Eurasia, uh, which have basically decided not to, to, to commit, uh, a collective suicide as they were, as they were expected to. So I'm, I'm happy that there is actually a, a sort of a real genuine resistance that I can identify saying no, no to the depopulation, no to the shutdown of the, their industrial base. And no to this permanent war because this whole system, you know, ultimately it it talks about (laughs) agenda 2030 and, and, you know, the green new deal crap, the great, great reset initiative. All of these things are parts of the same thing. And they all use this nice flowery language of world peace and, we're going to have a, a world of stability and all – it's not – that's just – it's like it's like what they did to Ukraine, like, you know, just – or or Russia, you know, like, yeah, just dissolve the Soviet Union and you're going to have this great capitalist world of of cooperation and, and win-win. Uh, no, it, it was always a lie. You're right. Privatizing their entire uh, former Soviet space the way that it was done was always designed to destroy the people, destroy the nations, and subdue them under a one-world government. That was always the agenda. And that's the same thing uh today and it requires ongoing uh, infinite wars that will never end the balkanization of everybody into smaller and smaller compartments, right? Um, Just like what they did to Yugoslavia, what what Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about, when you look at his grand chessboard, he wrote in 1997, he had a a map of like a hyper-balkanized Russian Federation that was broken up into something like 12 microstates, or they have the same designs, you know, there's maps that have been put forward by think tanks, over the years for China to break them up into like seven little tiny, uh, divided ethnic, eth- like little mini ethnic nationalist groups that would all be under the control of the IMF, the World Bank. And so, um, the great reset is really infinite war. Um, that would, that would, that would basically be the fate of most of the world, um, and starvation. It would be a painful thing. And, and so again, the Eurasian economic system especially with Sergei Glazyev, you know, the, the uh, the, uh, advisor to the Russian Federation, who's a, uh, a leading figure, um, who's currently being br- brought back into play right now, um, in the last couple of weeks, um, he's been calling for and, and putting online an actual, uh, program for Eurasian Economic Union, China, new, uh, financial system premised on completely different paradigm of, of economics, um, and also just activity like the the idea of emitting long-term credit for the development of uh the arctic of siberia which putin has has said again is still an, a national priority despite the economic sanctions and attacks against the Rupal. um the development and extension of the of high-speed rail and other things into opening up the underdeveloped uh siberian and northern regions which is tied to the polar silk road which is another branch you know people i think all know this but china's Belt and Road Initiative has also the name, uh, New Silk Road, which has a polar extension, which has really taken hold, especially since 2019. Um, it's a big part of my new book. And so all of these things are, are, are really integrating into this holistic, um, resistance, which is all premised on anti-depopulation, anti-destruction of nation states. And instead what we're seeing for the 140 countries, at least that have signed agreements to join to varying degrees the Belt and Road initiative i mean 140 that's that's significant um what we're seeing is something very different from the IMF world bank sort of practice towards africa or other poor countries over the the past 70 years and instead what we're seeing are uh loans not tied to conditionalities but that are rather tied to the specific building of giant projects whether it's in ethiopia or kenya or uh sudan or other neighboring countries in asia or russia they actually so it's it's a matter of getting things done that is creating a blossoming of private enterprise of, you know, it's not just this, it's often characterized by mainstream media, you know, as this, uh, replay of, you know, the old crusty communist order of authoritarian nation states that don't believe in private, uh, <laughs> private capital, um, versus the liberal, the, the liberal demo- democratic societies that believe in freedom. Um, no, it's actually not that at all. So there's, there's something else going on which again, gives me some hope because this is a different type. We will get a new system. That's that's a guarantee. The question is whether it's going to be operating on which principle, right? And the, these other uh, leaders of Eurasia, they're representing, you know, again, ancient civilizational forces. They uh, Their idea right now is that we need an open, not a closed system. The, the Great Reset idea is very much premised on the mathematical idea of a closed computer model. Uh, there's nothing you can introduce that's not within the parameters of the system of the programmer, right? Running the, the, the computer models, whereas in an open system, which is, I think more in harmony with how the universe actually works. Um, there's always new place for creative, uh, ideas, new discoveries that haven't been made that are not in, in the old model. Um, which is that, that's really, I think the, the fundamental lesson of economics, which is, uh, if, yeah, we have to really make that breakthrough fast though. Cause if we still think that we're just, <laughs> that we're just, uh, yeah, you know, a little hedonistic machine inside of a, a computer system and that's like our nature. Uh we're we're not gonna be able to argue against people like George Soros and, and others who are who are trying to convince us that this is really our fate, right? Is just to accept that we've we've overshot our consumption, we have to now think little, think small, think depopulated, you know, <laughs> expect to kill grandma if she's too expensive to maintain, unfortunately, right? That's the new paradigm. Um, the cost cost benefit ratio doesn't doesn't justify keeping old people alive if they're they're not useful anymore. So you got again it's it's this Nazi ethic coming back online, which we have to uh, be able to refute.
0: Matthew, thanks for giving us some some hope. And uh, how about uh, telling us at, at the end here? Tell us about your new book.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, well yeah, it's it's volume three of the trilogy. So I'm closing up this trilogy that began with volume one of the Clash of the Two Americas. Volume one. Had a uh, it, it dealt with 1774 um, with the Quebec Act, um, which kept sort of Quebec here where I'm located. That was that was all of Canada back then. It kept us out of the American Revolution where we were supposed to. We had a lot of Ben Franklin was up here uh, in in Montreal for several weeks tr- right be- in April 1776, and he had been really trying hard to to organize a delegation from Canada to be a part of the other 13 colonies to say as 14 colonies we're gonna create this new type of system outside of the British Empire and, and we failed the Quebec Act was one of the bribes that kept us under the uh, the control of the crown that was a screw-up so anyway that that that's where that story kicks off in volume one and it it proceeds all the way through the assassinations of all of the the leaders the the different American presidents of the 19th century up up until uh, McKinley was killed in 1901 and I'm, I'm just trying to like I try to very concisely get across the uh the common threads, the common themes of what each one of these presidents from uh, Harrison in 1840 to Zachary Taylor in, in 1851 to, to Lincoln, obviously, and then Garfield and then McKinley. What, what's the common thread that they were all activating? What were the common interests at different times that they were attacking the, this Wall Street fifth column parasite embedded as a part of this British empire within the United States, this deep state? They were all doing battle with this, this cancer inside of the U.S., um, so I, I tried to tell that story in volume one. Volume two picks up from like 1890 until um, the present with this uh, the title of the open versus closed systems coll- collide with a picture of Zbigniew Brzezinski on the one side with a big explosion behind him and then <laughs> a painting of JFK uh, counterposing him uh, just to get across again the more of the 20th century dynamic of how the US was uh, subverted by this same thing that killed Harrison, Zachary Taylor, uh, Lincoln, and McKinley. Um, And then it focuses on the rise of the... uh, I I tried to spend the last few chapters just painting, fleshing out what is this open system that's re-emerging that the U.S. once was, but now is being represented by uh, the leadership of Russia, China, and others in the Eurasian zone. And then currently now, the the third volume that was just finally made available uh, today, it's about 400 pages... Uh, is on the birth of a eurasian manifest destiny so how the old typically american idea of the monroe doctrine the manifest dex- destiny do- doctrine at least the better variant of it because there's a few destructive variants of the manifest destri- destiny idea that justify a pax americana but the more there's actually a, a good healthy version as well um how that's being revived um in eurasia uh, currently, with a lot of history, there's a lot of lot of context in there, and and uh, I, I've got several chapters just fleshing out the deep state fifth columns in China, as well as in Russia, so that Westerners can better appreciate what the hell is going on, you know, in these countries that we often tend to label with with like one good or evil paintbrush, and we miss the nuance. So that's uh, that's something people can buy either on my website, um, on CanadianPatriot.org. It's an easy way to find it. There's there's all sorts of little buttons saying buy the books. Um, or if they, uh, they want a PDF, they could just write to me at, uh, info at risingtidefoundation.net. I could send them a PDF, uh, for free if you, if money is scarce, I understand. Um, otherwise that's, that's the best thing to do.
0: Matt, this has been tremendous. And, uh, I can see why you're so well thought of in Canada and and other parts of this world. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope you come back. Like to have your wife on at some point too. <laughs> Cynthia
1: would love to be on. She loves your website and, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I would. I would. I'm looking forward to our next uh,
0: conversation. Terrific. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Lou. Bye. 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 Well, thanks so much for listening to the Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There've been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you.